On today's episode, we have Joseph Men, author and investigative journalist at Reuters. Joseph is the most respected mainstream journalist focusing on tech policy and cybersecurity issues today. He recently came out with his newest book titled Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World, which tells the story of the oldest, most respected, and most famous American hacking group of all time. Its members invented the concept of hacktivism and created what was for years the best tool for controlling computers remotely, which in turn forced large corporations to focus more on protecting their customer security. In this episode, Chad and Joseph discuss the beginnings of computer hacking, Joseph's writing over his 30-year career as a journalist and an author, and the courage it takes to write about such controversial topics today. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So what brings you out uh, this part of the country? Well, I'm based in San Francisco, where I've been covering cybersecurity for 20 years. First, it was the LA Times and then the Financial Times. And I've been doing investigative work on it for Reuters for the last seven years. And you've written a number of books throughout that time. Could you take us back maybe to your first book and walk through them? Because I think a history of your writing is almost like, you know, a history of the uh, security industry in a sense. So if you could take us to the beginning, I'd love to walk through them. Sure. So I started covering tech as a whole, with security as a piece of that in 99. I was at the LA Times then. And it was, you know, peak of the dot-com craziness. And, you know, people were investing in clearly ridiculous things because they were convinced that somebody would pay even more for it, you know, post-IPO. And it was a crazy time. And being in the truth business, it was sort of hard to uh, surprise people and sort of get through the noise and say, no, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. I got to know some of the people at, at Napster. And I just thought it was a really interesting case study uh, because lots of people had heard of Napster. It was very famous at the time. Sean Fanning was you know, the first hacker on the cover of, of, um, of Time magazine, uh, at least a young hacker. I guess Steve Jobs made it once or twice. You know, he had broad appeal and people were, you know, kids loved the idea of free music. Who wouldn't, right? You know, what was interesting about it is that it was pretty clearly illegal uh, what they were doing. And the blue chip venture capital firms wanted to invest in it anyway. And so to me, it was sort of a great illustration of how the venture capital system around here can jumpstart technology, but also corrupt it uh, because it will take it off in a weird direction if they think that's where the big payout might be. The gray area is very okay. I thought it was like a cautionary tale. You know, their business model, people didn't know what the, the actual strategy was, which is another reason I want to write about it. It was famous, but Sean Fanning never had control of the dang thing. His uncle did. His uncle kept 70% of the thing on corporation. His uncle had a really checkered past. And then the business strategy was basically extortion. It was, you know, we're going to grow so big and know so much about music consumers. You know, if somebody likes ACDC, you know, the odds are they're going to want this. And here's their email address. Here's how to reach them that the record industry would cut a deal with them and buy them off. We just punt liability. Yeah, and I don't think they knew very much about the record industry because <laughs> those guys, you know, stiff, completely legitimate producers, performers, artists all the time. So like possibly the wrong industry to kind of ex try to extort. I just thought it was a great tale. And it was also handy for me that the kids who are, I thought, really likable, smart, different kids. You know, I don't fault them for not knowing how VC works or how copyright law works. I, you know, it was the grownups that screwed it up. And because this was new to the kids, they was like, oh, they hadn't been in a pitch meeting. They didn't know what a term sheet was. It was a way to educate people about how the system worked because right. you do it through their eyes. And so you don't have this boring part where now I tell you the history of Silicon Valley. It's like a fun adventure 
where you where you learn about it without it being painful. It's pretty thrilling. And uh, all of the gentlemen you mentioned were learning in real time. And that's why I think sometimes people, their humanity isn't taken into consideration with stories because it's uh, it's a whole nother thing to be presented with, you know, somebody trying to give you millions of dollars without that person isn't asking questions and they're aggressively trying to give you millions of dollars. And I think until you've been on the receiving end of that, how just how ethical a person you are, you're not really sure, right? And until you're pushed to those edges or pushed into those situations, it's until then that you find out. So I'd be curious to know, like what uh, you've obviously followed that company and, you know, Sean and everyone. So what was the genesis like? I know it's such a long story. Well, I mean, it happened really fast. You know, it started when Sean was 17 and he came out here. Sean Parker, uh, his co-founder, who's I guess now more famous because he wound up being the first president of, of Facebook and was a billionaire. You know, he when I met him, he was crashing on couches. You know, he'd never been on a plane before, before they started trying to raise money. It was just supercharged. It was really, really fast. And the crash was pretty bad. They got creamed in court. But what's interesting in the connection to the security stuff is that, you know, again, it wasn't really presented in the in the glossy magazine and the very carefully controlled uh, TV interviews. Um, but Sean Fanning was a hacker. He wrote port scanners. He hung out with some really smart people. And one of them was this hacker group called Woo Woo. And he was also in an IRC internet relay chat channel called... Um, Pound CDC after the cult of the dead cow. Just about every hacker online or engineer or interesting person, they were gravitating towards these message boards, right? Right. Those were some of the earliest beta testers of the Napster program were like these sort of more sophisticated, slightly older hackers who've gone on to do incredible things. So one of the members of Woo Woo uh, co-founded WhatsApp and another one, this guy named Doug Song, who founded uh, Arbor Networks, a big DDoS uh, prevention company, and more recently, Duo Security, uh, recently bought by Cisco for, I think, more than a billion. So it's a really interesting group. And it was kind of a fun time where you had kids and very sophisticated sort of older folks, some criminals and some CEOs. <laughs> and they're all sort of like they played pretty well together. You know, they found common interest in, in figuring out how stuff worked. They tried to respect, I would say, the rule of law, if not the spirit of the law sometimes. And that's a gross generalization. But I would say on balance, maybe that's a fair statement. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, some of these people were out and out criminals, but most of them, that, that's, that wasn't the point of these groups. And the out and out criminals, they didn't last that long doing what they were doing. Groups like uh, Legion of Doom and Masters of Deception, that was some that was some full bore criminal activity, and those guys got broken up. But you know, Woo Woo had a couple criminals. It's just that wasn't the point of Woo Woo, except in the you know in the very beginning when everybody was stealing long distance service, you know, so they could connect to a bulletin board because if it wasn't in your area code, then your parents are going to get sure. a five hundred dollar phone bill, and you're going to have an unpleasant conversation. So Napster was the first book, and then the next book. Well, I started. I was writing about cybersecurity more and more. And in 03, there was kind of this tectonic shift where before that, if there's something went wrong with your computer, it's because you clicked on something dumb, somebody was pranking, or, you know, somebody wrote a virus. After 03, it was probably organized crime. And people were slow to realize that. But what had happened was that the spam situation got bad enough that IT folks were blacklisting uh, bad IP addresses uh, and email uh, addresses. And so... The easiest thing to do if you're a spammer and you need to, you know, reach a bajillion people is to have a virus writer, you know, collect a bunch of computers in a botnet and then spew out uh, email like in the middle of the night from your grandma's living room PC without her knowing it. I just thought it was going to get worse and worse because there was no actual defense to this. Sort of like the second easiest thing besides relay spam you could do with this botnet if you had no morals was to do denial of service extortion attacks where... They would, you know, knock over a website uh, with, you know, meaningless pings 
from all these different machines and say, you know, give us $10,000 or your website stays down. One of the first groups that they hit were these offshore gambling sites in Latin America, Costa Rica and other places aimed at American gamblers. You know, gambling was legal here in most of the states. And it was it was sort of interesting. Like, why would they pick on those guys? Well, it's because they had pretty poor infrastructure, uh, given that they were in less developed countries. Um, they weren't going to call the FBI because the FBI considered what they were doing was illegal. And if they went down on Super Bowl Sunday, they were really going to hurt. And they had a lot of cash. So these guys are fat targets. So these uh, largely Russian bad guys were targeting those. And while technologically it wasn't all that interesting, like anybody could understand the business model. You know, it's not as complicated as explaining, well, the real problem with software security is patch management. You know, when I was in the newspaper business, I thought I could hear like all the newspapers being put down at once across the city if I had to write something about patch management. Right. So this anybody could understand. This is good old fashioned extortion. And they hired a, like a California defense guy named Barrett Lyon. And he sort of got he got onto the IRC channels that were telling the bots what to do. And he figured out uh, a real IP address of somebody in, in Russia and, and eventually a real name. Then the same bad guys were going after publicly traded gambling companies in the UK. The UK found out what Barrett was doing and they sent a detective to Russia for three years. And at that point, Russia and the UK were getting along OK. And they wanted to make an example of this. So like, you know, even if you're, you know, in Russia, if you're attacking Western businesses, we will get you. And they did. They got Three guys, they were sent to jail for, for eight years, which happens like once every never. And so that was like, that was the happy story in my next book, which is called Fatal System Error. Really the point, I mean, it's sort of satisfying that these guys were actually caught, right. but it took years to do it. These are mid-level guys. They're not evil geniuses. And the twist is what happens when they tried to go upstream and basically Russian intelligence kicked them out of the country because they were actually working in cahoots with organized criminals. The point of fatal system warriors basically we're all screwed because the attack surface keeps getting bigger because of the geopolitics, because Russia doesn't care. You know, the, the criminals are actually useful to them. It was right when they were starting to do cyber attacks on Estonia and Georgia, the sort of stuff that is now metastasized and we see in, in Ukraine where they're actually turning off the lights. But I just, again, I saw that this was going to get a lot worse. And and I, I wanted people to, to realize how bad it was. Instead of just leaving it to the experts in Washington, I kind of wanted like a mass audience to see that we're really in a bad way in cybersecurity and it's going to get worse. So that was the point of that book. And do you view your work as a briefing for policy leaders? I mean, how obviously it's for everyone, it's for the public, um, but I view your work as kind of like something I wish more elected officials read or at least were briefed on maybe? So I usually have multiple audiences in mind. Uh, in this case, I felt that a lot of smart people in Washington knew how bad it was, but the general public didn't. Mm -hmm. And so basically I was doing an end run around Washington. I wanted people as a whole to grasp this because I felt that once they did, then maybe Congress would get try to get in front of the people and do the right thing. Um, so I was trying to I was trying to go around them to regular folks. But it is in English. You know, that book is written for regular folks and it's got hookers and guns and drugs and good old fashioned Gambinos, not just Russian mobsters. And so Jeff Moss, the, the founder of, of DEF CON and Black Hat, he said he used to go to Washington to try and talk sense into whoever was running the show. And he said every time he went, he would like he would get another 10 or 20 copies of my book to hand out to congressional staffers I'm like here. Here here is a simple explanation, like a narrative you can follow with interesting characters 
that shows you how bad this is. And a story you can repeat and tell that's right. uh, very, people are on the edge of their seats, right? Right. And then yeah. at the, the the end of that book, it was all recommendations. Here's what Congress should do. This came out in 2010. And actually, most of those things have been done, which is really wow. nice. You know, we're still in deep trouble, but uh, a lot of those things have been done. Did that give you a lot of hope to see a lot of those changes and recommendations implemented? It was satisfying, but unfortunately, the situation is so bad. We're a long way from making this better. In fact, I think things are still getting worse. If you look at uh, the Internet of Things um, and all the huge gaping vulnerabilities that don't get patched. And really, in you know Washington, the fact that the executive branch spends about 90 percent of cybersecurity money on offense, including the ability to intercept. I think that's a disaster. There's an American sure. football saying that says, like, you know, good offense wins games and good defense wins Super Bowls. All the advantages is for the attacker. And I'm super worried now about unchecked escalation uh, in, in the cyber domain, as they say at DOD. Because some people seem to consider a cyber attack a direct physical attack and they want the military to view it accordingly. Is that the problem is, is that this cyber is asymmetric. So it's a great way for little countries to catch up to us. Right. Uh, we got a whole bunch of bombers and that's great. Even North Korea, which is, you know, an impoverished, desperate country, can train up some hackers and do some pretty serious damage. So the more that cyber attacks are seen as uh, as kosher, you know, what we're doing to Iran right now, we're really raising the risks for civilians here. Yeah. And I think it's a thing where, you know, like an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And we're kind of entering a scenario right now where I'm not sure a lot of people have the maybe confidence to back down from cyber escalation and just prepare more on the defensive side, right? Because offense is an easy sell generally for like the public or when you're raising money or things like that, people can get very worked up, but trying to sell defensive positions and postures and, you know, investments in new technology that might take a decade to realize that's much harder work. So I'd be interested to hear what are some of the hardest challenges we still face to kind of solve this? Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of them. You know, we've been, the U.S. has been sort of promoting this idea of norms, and that includes uh, sort of proportionality and, you know, not going after civilian infrastructure. But the problem is it's all it's all intermingled. So that there hasn't been huge progress there. And if you're the only side that respects the rules, like that's not... <laughs> we, the U.S., got hurt a lot by Snowden and WikiLeaks. And that sort of opened people's eyes to the fact that, you know, you may be in some other country and you may be using Google, but the Fourth Amendment does not apply to you. And, you know, the U.S. will suck up everything, even if that means hacking Google overseas. And, you know, depending on American tech has, you know, has a strategic price to it. And in terms of spying, you know, the U.S. is really top of the line at, at, at spying and Russia and China are very good. And so are other countries. But we were sort of like the U.S. was sort of left with our moral defense being, well, we don't steal commercial secrets and give it to our businesses. We might steal commercial secrets and use it for negotiating trade agreements or something like that, but that was about it. And so, yeah, it's worse that China has a policy of like, you know, stealing Cisco secrets and giving it to Huawei and that sort of thing. But it's not an awesome rallying cry. You know, we're about freedom and, you know, We'll steal everything we possibly can and we won't help American business. You know, that that's the only difference between us and them. That's not so great. There, there are a lot of really, really big problems. here. Yeah. But th this book is not about that because that's not the point. Cult of the Dead Cow. It's uh, maybe perhaps one of the best titles ever in terms of grabbing people's attention. So this is about the the oldest and most influential group of good guy white hat hackers in U.S. history. They go all the way back to the mid 1980s. They're still around today. Until this book, they're almost all known only by their handles or pseudonyms. A few of them had been outed. 
uh, and they all agreed to cooperate with the book. They're, I'm using all of their real names. 16 uh, real sources and names, right? There are 16 people I named for the first time in the book, all with their blessing. They accomplished a tremendous amount in all these different areas, not only as a group, but, you know, on their own or ones and twos. Politics and technology. In politics, in the public sector, private sector, uh, nonprofits, the activist world. And most people don't know who they are, or even if they actually knew, know a lot of the story or knew them when they were famous 20 years ago, don't realize all the great things that they've done since. And it's because cybersecurity is, is a depressing. It's like a lot of people get burnout in the field. Yeah. And like generally they get famous only if they screw up and they get breached and the, some CISO gets fired. I think it's really important to call out the really amazing good stuff that's been done. And I also think, you know, I spoke before about multiple audiences for my books. So there are a few I have in mind for this book. One of them is the people coming into the field more recently that don't know this really important history and the sort of the um, hard ethical work that went into various calls that people made. But another, frankly, is big tech, the people working for Google and Facebook and Microsoft, where the leaders of, the, uh, of those companies seem to have lost their way in the view of a, of a lot of engineers, to the extent where you have rank and file engineers protesting in the streets against their own employers, which is something I haven't seen in 20 years out here. And the fact that we haven't seen that in 20 years means that something's different, right, as an industry as a whole. Are there any big trends that you cite, whether they're cultural or management related, that are leading to this or contributing? Well, so, I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, people losing touch with the earlier hacker spirit. And, you know, the, the guys that came up with the big inventions, not just in security, but in tech as a whole, wanted to make things better uh, for people. And the, the, the gizmos were a means to do that. I think tech sort of got a free pass from a lot of folks for a variety of reasons. It was great for the economy. It was great for the trade balance. People liked having the power of a NASA supercomputer in their pocket, reconnecting with old high school friends over Facebook. And they didn't really think about the all, all the downsides. I mean, you heard like people worried about jobs getting replaced mm -hmm. and they were, you know, they were kind of brushed off, uh, you know, oh, well, you know, that's okay. There'll be these new great tech jobs that are cleaner and better. And it's, you know, that's the march of progress. And then since 16, um, since 2016, I think that's all, you know, like the scales have fallen from people's eyes that they see that there's, there's real danger and there's real problems with manipulation of people's emotions, uh, people getting addicted to this stuff and it being a plaything for foreign powers for disinformation, domestic and, and foreign. And it's really caused people to question a lot. And the, the, the answers from the companies have just frankly been inadequate. You know, they, you know, you can see them in Congress and they're just not, they don't seem like credible, moral people committed to doing what's right. It doesn't sound like they're speaking from the heart as much as they're just speaking from their comms team and legal department, which is a bummer, right? Because I think that's what a lot of American people who are watching those hearings were hoping to hear and get a sense of like, no, don't worry. Like, here's what we're doing. Here's why this happened. Won't happen again. We're taking these steps. You know, you should feel confident. But it didn't didn't feel like that. It just felt like it, we're going to do whatever. Even, you know, people inside these companies and people want to do the right thing. People were psyched to come work for Google or Facebook or whoever. And they're like, well, this is a fun job. I'm going to get paid well. Because there's excellent people there. We're not bashing these companies by any stretch of the imagination. But I think there's certain individuals, though, that are just maybe like pulling the companies in a very different direction. Something's going off kilter. Yeah. Um, or you wouldn't see this kind of, this 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 sort of bubbling. I mean, this is, this is a privileged workforce. Those guys and women are some of the, are the, the major heirs of the CDC tradition. Like, you know, the, the sort of 
you know, what is the, the greatest good for the greatest people and how do we get there even against really hard odds? I mean, yeah. the things that I admire the most about CDC besides just being the smartest group of people I've ever met is that they're, they're critical thinkers and they're, they have a sense of moral purpose and they kept leveling up when the, mm-hmm. the playing field changed. I mean, so it's hard enough to like understand what's wrong with the security architecture of a, some piece of enterprise software, um, particularly if you don't have access to the source code. But then they're like, well, okay, how do we get this monopoly software company, which really has no financial incentive to build in better security, how do we make them do that? And the fact that they would come up with all these different ways to make it happen, I just it's just an inspiring story the more people sure. get to hear. Because a lot of enterprises that are using a full stack of other people's software, just like you mentioned, don't realize that they might not be able to see the source code. So they don't know what vulnerabilities they're facing in a sense. Uh, sometimes they do, like the most savvy teams are probably aware of those vulnerabilities, or would you say they're not? The big software buyers rely on third-party code audits, you know, basically somebody vouching that the source code says something. One of the the many things that these guys did is Chris Rue founded um, a company called Vericode, which allowed people to look at what the binaries are doing. Because, you know, the source code is, is, is the program's idea of what should happen, but the binaries are what's actually happening. And so it was much more powerful to be able to have access to that. Um, so that was, you know, one of a number of great technological innovations that these guys, uh, mostly guys, one woman brought to us all. And let's talk for a moment about the type of courage required, because a lot of the people we're talking about, you know, it can sound when we say these words easy to do the things that they're doing, but they're also they're critiquing and they're criticizing. And sometimes they're fighting against organized crime families and things like that. They're doing it under their own names a lot of times when they work for these uh, large tech companies. So I would love to hear maybe a story or two that illustrates the uh, courage required to be, uh, you know, an investigative journalist in the space or a good hacker in the space. You know, I'm not a coder. I'm an investigative journalist. I have written bad things. I mean, I accused the Russian government of being in cahoots with organized crime. I was followed around Moscow by very large people who spoke into their collars a lot. That was nerve wracking. You know, in the U.S., I've linked um, two members of the Forbes 400 to the mob over the years. You know, I've written nasty stuff about China you know, I've written nasty stuff about Anonymous and I got, you know, they they came after me. It goes with the territory. I mean, I get to, I'm very lucky. I get to live in America and I get to, um, I'm I'm not in, you know, real danger of being murdered. I have colleagues in overseas that have a, a much, much riskier uh, life than I do. Colleagues in Burma win a Pulitzer Prize, but we're still in jail uh, for more than a year for exposing what the government of Myanmar admitted was a massacre of civilians that involved its soldiers. You know, there are no rights in a lot of countries. And so I sort of have a moral obligation to do what I can from here. The security folks, I mean, <laughs> for, for fatal system error, you know, my the heroes in the book were Barrett Lyon, an American, and uh, Andy Crocker, the Welsh detective that went to Russia. And we'll, we were working on that together. You know, normally the worst thing that could happen to you if, if you're uh, a book writer is that you get sued for libel. And the second worst thing that can happen is that nobody reads your book. And those were like number 11 and 12 for Fatal System Error. Barrett, the funny thing, the the great subplot in Fatal System Error is Barrett, the guy that infiltrated the Russian cyber mob over IRC. He took money from these U.S.-facing gambling sites to set up a defense business called Prolexic. And then, you know, one day he found himself making payroll because... A guy in the parking lot in Miami showed up with a suitcase full of cash. Those guys were mobbed. It turns out they were Gambino. 
So he'd accidentally infiltrated the American cyber mob. And he wore a wire again. He could have walked away, but he wore, he went to the FBI, who he'd known from before, um, when he was trying to get them interested in the Russians, and he wore a wire against the Gambinos. He outed himself in the book as, you know, he hadn't been needed, his testimony hadn't been needed in court. So we were worried about him getting whacked. Uh, we were worried about Andy, the Welsh detective, you know, getting killed by the Russians who had, you know, come to trust him. There was the Official Secrets Act in Britain that says you can't talk about a whole bunch of things. And he would, he was talking about an investigation. So it, at any one point in time, one of us was freaking out about something and the other two were calming, uh, calming them down. So that was that was the last book. You know, there are a lot of security people, especially who are writing about Russian operations, uh, who do so under pseudonyms for really good reason. So, yeah, thanks for sharing those stories. I think that helps with context a lot. So you've been a journalist for three decades, safe to say. How have you seen the field evolve in that time? Because there's a lot of worry right now about things like machine learning and AI taking over journalists' jobs. But I don't, I'm not really worried about that. I think, if anything, there's a chance to empower journalists with more technology. So I would love to hear your take on the issue and uh, how you've seen the field evolve. It is definitely changed. I mean, there's a proliferation of, of sources now. There's more good journalism now than I think there has been in the past. It's just there's also so much bad journalism. There are people who get paid almost nothing, or in some cases nothing, to produce as much content that is as eye-grabby as possible. On the other hand, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post are doing really well right now because there is a hunger for analysis and serious, you know, investigative reporting. One of the things that's weird is that there are outlets that do both really terrific work and cheesy uh, clickbait stuff. The Washington Post and BuzzFeed both come to mind. Pulitzer's at both places and just a lot of like silly celebrity fluff. So you can't, I can't even tell you like, yeah, go go to this one outlet. They're known for good stuff because they might have a bunch of silly stuff too. So it's it depends on um, the beat, uh, what you're interested in. In some cases, you have to follow an individual reporter. There are these different models coming out. So there's charity supported stuff like ProPublica, um, sort of benevolent billionaire stuff. Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post. Uh, the Red Sox guy buying the Boston Globe. That's encouraging. Uh, it's encouraging that I think the sort of the the metered model seems to be working, where you read X number of stories for free, and then you know you pay a minor amount if you want more. So I I, I have faith. I think it's going to be okay. It's always been a profession that attracts more people than it can really support at least support to do really deep stuff. I'm super lucky that, you know, I wanted to be an investigative journalist at 15 and it only took me about 25 years or so. And now I get to do it. Is a problem in the industry a lack of good assignments? So if we defined good assignments as, you know, doing a long form investigative piece where you're writing one thing and that's all you do over the course of one month is, is a lack of assignments like that. You think the major problem because people can't go as deep on a story and invest as much time and resources are required to make it successful? Well, it's certainly what reporters feel like, but it's expensive. The first place I worked was the Charlotte Observer in North Carolina. And there were um, there's a newsroom of more than 200 people, and there were two investigative reporters. And they were awfully good. And it's not what everybody wanted to do, but a lot of us did. And, you know, the rest of us had to fill the paper with other stuff that you could sell ads around. And that's the way it worked. But, you know, that's that's kind of always the way it's been. And unfortunately, if if the business model starts to crater, it's often the, the investigative reporters that get thrown overboard first. And uh, any take or comment on machine learning and AI? That doesn't terrify me. I worked at Bloomberg uh, after 
Charlotte. And that was a long time ago when most people had not heard of Bloomberg. And it had, when I got there, there were computers writing market stories, you know, that would take, you know, the the biggest losers and, and winners in the, the Dow Jones average in the, you know, in the opening trading and write a story uh, and send it out there. That's okay. That gives the, that gives reporters more time to work on more interesting stuff. And when it came to the cult of the dead cow, I'd be curious to know how long was your research process for this book? Or was it just something you, you know, you started did a little bit of writing here and there and put the project together over, was it a year? Was it two years? How long did it take? So it was actually three years. If it was all I was doing full time, it would have taken more than a year. In reality, it was spread over three, which is fairly common. You know, a lot of the the effort goes into sort of conceptualizing it and reporting out an outline of what the book would look like in order to get a deal. My advanced age, my advanced mortgage, I can't write a book on spec. I need like a, a, a contract. But to go in order to get a contract, and it was easier for me because I'd written previous books that did well, but you still need to submit a some sample chapter and an outline and sort of an idea of why people would buy the book and, and, and how you, you plan to peddle it. So you know, because I was still working the day job at Reuters, you know, that's a lot of weekends. Uh, and so it takes it takes a while. And uh, what publisher did you choose to go with for the book? And have you worked with the same publisher for a long time? This book and the previous book were both put out by Public Affairs, which does a lot of high end journalism. They're out of New York. They're now owned by one of the major uh, publishing houses. It's called Hachette. And that's good because that means if they want to put money behind distribution and marketing to some extent, um, they can. It's a small, proud imprint uh, public affairs that is part of a, a big conglomerate. And let's talk a little bit about kind of the ethos of this community and the 16 individuals that you profiled in the book, because I think that in order to understand them and their work, we have to start with what's motivating them because the, the ethos that are driving them are not clear at a glance. It evolved over time. The group has had 50 people during its you know 35 years of existence. I'd say about 20 active at any one time. So people you know, some people dropped out, new people came in. And one of the, the reasons I think that they were so effective is that they're fairly diverse, you know, in perspective and backgrounds, but they do have core shared values. And so curiosity is one, a belief that information um, should flow as much as possible. The, they're not about destruction and they're not, a, they're not about theft. Most of them, particularly in the early days, would have cited a, a file, an old text file called... Um, the Conscience of a Hacker by a figure named uh, The Mentor. And uh, he wrote it shortly before he was arrested. You know, exploration is good. Destruction is bad. Curiosity is good. And share what you know. Those are sort of like the, the sort of the core building blocks. But again, what I liked about these guys is they sort of had to keep, you know, upping their game, not just analyze software, but like, you know, would take on performance artist, you know, aspects. They would manipulate the media. They were not always truthful. Uh, which made my job harder. The devil's advocate might say that they were just using disinformation like they'd seen many other organizations that they did not respect use disinformation. They thought, okay, maybe we can do this for good. They were one of the first to do that. Those are non-governmental groups to make up really big stories and get it out in the media. I had to overcome my bias against that. I mean, that's like a mortal enemy for somebody in the truth Sa- business. Which sounds horrible if, at the first glance. And- it's part of what they did. And their defense of it in retrospect is that they were calling attention. They were using these tactics because it was fun and they like to make fun of the sort of tech illiterate press, but mostly to draw attention to real world problems. So one of the reasons that the group was famous was that they invented hacktivism. And to call attention to that, their first target was the government of China, which was censoring the internet. 
And so, like I said, the CDC was kind of a big tent. There are people who worked for the U.S. government. There are people that hated the U.S. government. But nobody liked what the government of China was doing to the Internet. And these are people that have a lot of intimate details about what the Chinese government is doing. There was um, one of the things in the book shows that there was um, a fair amount of communication with Western intelligence. But, you know, a lot of what China was doing was out in the open. Great firewall um, and, you know, banning certain uh, certain sites uh, and a lot of monitoring and surveillance. So... CDC promoted a um, privacy-protecting browser. Tor uh, looked at what they were doing uh, and said, well, I guess we should put a browser in too. Uh, and so they did. And so that was one of the the many impacts that they've had in sort of like the nonprofit, open source, hacktivism type world. And weren't a couple of people that were working on ARPANET part of this group? The couple things that the CDC are most famous for, it's funny, it depends what era you came in. So they were famous in the earliest days for their text files, which were frequently just very funny. And sometimes making fun of like more sophisticated, more criminal hackers. If you came online in the 80s, it may well be that the first text files you saw were by the cult of the dead cow. Then if you came in later, it might have been that, well, yeah, I started hacking. And the first tool I used to break into Windows machines was back orifice. So they got famous as they sort of got technologically more sophisticated. They put out uh, famously back orifice and BO2K. This is the late 90s now. And they did that to shame and embarrass Microsoft into doing taking security more seriously. Because they couldn't believe what Microsoft was saying about their products at the time, right? Or was well, that? Well, Microsoft put internet, put TCP IP into Windows 95, which was terrific, but they put in no security. So if you could get somebody to click on something, you could take over their machine. And criminals could already do that. Mm -hmm. What the Cult of the Dead Cow decided to do was to let everybody do that. And so they, they put on these wild costumes. They did a light show with pulsating music at DEF CON. And they threw CDs into the crowd that allowed anybody to hack anybody's machine, script kiddies included. And did that mean that more innocent people were going to get hacked in the short term? Absolutely. But they figured out that the only way, the best way to get Microsoft to move off the dime was to get on television and say, these crazy hackers are you know coming for you. What are you going to do about it? And that actually set in motion Microsoft getting way, way better about security. So there was that. And then there was the hacktivism thing, uh, which lives on in many other groups to this day and great nonprofits. But after their sort of peak in fame 20 years ago, they continued to do all these great things in different ways. We talked about the nonprofit activist stuff in the private sector. Some of them founded at stake which sent these really talented programmers and engineers inside Microsoft, big banks, other places to tell them what they were doing wrong and gave us people like Katie Masuris, who's got Microsoft to pay bug bounties, got the Pentagon to pay bug bounties to ethical hackers, Windows Snyder, who was the brains behind Windows XP Service Pack 2, which is greatly forward in Microsoft security, uh, later went in-house at Apple and really revamped their threat modeling, and Alex Stamos who went on to Yahoo and then Facebook, where he blew the whistle on Russian uh, election interference in 2016. So a lot of the CDC's influence is sort of who they mentored and taught. And those are the people that are really steeped in big sort of ethical calls that a lot of the younger people coming into the field don't know. And then the third wing would be the government wing, the, the, the third area of influence. So famously, uh, Mudge, who was one of the technologically sharpest of CDC, went to DARPA, the folks that brought you the internet. And a lot of what he did there was classified, but he did run their cybersecurity grant making program. And he created something called the Cyber Fast Track. And so instead of DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, giving $3 million to IBM or $5 million to Sun Microsystems or whatever to develop a secret weapon, 
Mudge arranged it so that an individual hacker could get $50,000 for like really one cool idea, Uh, even if they couldn't get a security clearance because of other things that they had done. So for the first time, it was feasible for these kind of, you know, outlier people who are really sharp to do something for their government if they wanted to. I just think it's so incredible that this small group of people against like really entrenched deep problems in the legal construct around software, in financial markets and geopolitics, found all these different ways to make a difference. So just a, a quick uh, side note for a personal question, but did they help inspire NQTEL? There is a connection to NQTEL. So uh, let's see if I could get this right. At Stake, which was the group you know, of this sort of like in the dot-com era and the OOs where they decided to like go straight and, and run a business. The chief technology officer there was a very, very smart guy named Dan Gear, who's given some really influential talks uh, over the years and written papers uh, about a multitude of problems with security and sort of like big picture stuff, which is what these guys are especially good at. Dan went on to perform the same role at InQtel, which is the intelligence agency's venture firm here in the Valley, uh, even though he doesn't have a security clearance. He deliberately did not want a security clearance. So he's he's an interesting uh, person that came from the same sort of circles of people. Let's talk about guerrilla marketing for a second, because I think for many pure technologists, they're not interested in marketing, or at least that's what they say. But when it comes down to accomplishing something or getting their software or products or patches out into the world, you have to market it, right? And I think what's fascinating about the call to the dead cow is how much earned media they generated, which has to be I mean, God knows how much money they generated in earned media. So let's talk about some of the uh, your favorite examples of guerrilla marketing and how they used, you know, no budget to get a ton of earned media. Well, so, yeah, that's one of the sort of the surprising things when you, when you look at this group is that they were masters at, at marketing and that they were using that for the social good. Because to me, I mean, when I think of like the really best marketers of the world, I think, well, they probably work for Nike or Kellogg's or something like that. You don't think of it as like these scruffy hacker dudes. In fact, if you look at the the emails, which I you know reproduce in the book, they thought about this a lot. So the founder of CDC, I, I vowed it as, as a guy named Kevin Wheeler from Lubbock, Texas. And he wound up taking a bunch of marketing courses. He was actually very passionate about music, a uh, really interesting guy. In addition to the text files and the sort of the tech world, he was a very good marketer. And in the very early days when CDC was about text files, numbered them all. Uh, and then bundled them up in, in batches and sent them to bulletin board operators all over the over the country. And because they were numbered, then people would know if they were missing. Like, oh, I have CDC files like 11 through 20, but I don't have 31 through 40. You could collect them. And people did. There are lots of things like that that they did that, that sort of got them into the public consciousness. And because of that, and because of one of their earliest members started the first hacking conference that invited the press and the cops, HoHoCon <laughs> in Texas, that attracted these serious technological minds from the Boston area and elsewhere in California. And they all sort of got together. And because of that, the people in the loft, the ones from Boston, had an early website. And most of bulletin boards disappeared after AOL and Netscape because you just browse the web. You didn't need to dial up, you know, some random bulletin board. Because of that, they preserved all the CDC text files. And so when bright-eyed kids started writing about this, what is this new internet culture in the late 90s, the CDC were already the grand old men. They had a lot of influence there. But the biggest example is the performance art stuff at DEF CON. So that's when they did all the light shows and everything, you know, sort of play up their sinister hacker stuff. 
You know, in the name, the cult of the dead cow is supposed to be a little sinister. It's an inside joke. There's an abandoned slaughterhouse in Lubbock that, you know, that gave them the idea. And starting with a remarkable name, though, that's kind of like the core of any great company or idea or movement. So it, they got that part checked off. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like it's really important for some reason if you're a rock band to have interesting hair. You know, it's <laughs> you know, hacker groups need a good name. Got to be interested in it to the point where you can talk about it with somebody that's like the hair expert or whatever. Joe, this has been awesome. Thank you for being generous with your time. Uh, I'd be curious to know if you are okay with doing a bit of a lightning round here where we talk about some of your favorite books, articles, authors, and generally just get a feel for what your media habits are. I'd give it a shot. Let's do it. So are you listening to any podcasts lately? I am not a podcast person. The reason is that I don't have a long commute. I'm lucky. I read very quickly. So I feel like I can consume more information uh, by reading. Digital, physical, what do you prefer books wise? I love old-fashioned physical books where I can dog-ear the pages and Same. write notes in the margin. Yeah, it, it appears that uh, anytime you have a tactile object, recall is better with that information. So a lot of me- they found that out doing uh, studies with medical doctors, but yeah, pretty interesting. Um, so speaking of books, any favorite nonfiction or fiction book that you're thinking about at the moment? There's an upcoming book on Russian cyber attacks called Sandworm by Andy Greenberg, who's you know another one of the sort of stalwart cybersecurity reporters. So I have the galleys of that and um, I'll, I'll be reading that pretty soon. Very cool. Any TV series or uh, shows that you like or check out? I love Silicon Valley. There was actually a reference to CDC in one of the seasons. There's like there's the hacker girlfriend of one of the guy one of the main characters uh who he sends to jail at some point because he's, he's oh dinesh's uh girlfriend right. yeah, yeah i remember that yeah. and yeah. she says she at one point oh, yeah, she says i'm mi5 from both from bovine dawn that's right bovine i didn't dawn realize what that was the forum uh for cdc's ninja strike force it was like it was where cdc fans and friends and some of the cdc themselves like traded like hacking tips and uh, I think not many people know, but the writers get ideas from Silicon Valley. So a lot of the stories that you appear, the names and some of the places have been changed, but they're generally based on no, it's, a lot it's of true stories. Heavily, heavily researched. Heavily researched, yeah, which is uh, so cool. Um, are there any up and coming uh, docu-series or movies that you're particularly excited about in this space? So there's unfortunately a, a tradition of really, really crappy uh, movies about hackers. I thought Sneakers was, was great. The documentaries are getting better. Uh, maybe Cult of the Dead Cow will be one and we'll see. Is the book optioned yet? or It hasn't yeah. been yet. People people are interested. Okay, um, very cool. It's, it's kind of inside baseball. The movie about Assange called Risk shows uh, Jake Applebaum, who was in CDC before they kicked him out, and Assange in a not very flattering light, which I think is appropriate. And I thought that was that was an interesting movie, but it's, it came and went pretty quickly, I think because the, there was some awkwardness there because I, the, the director, Laura Poitras, who did the, the big Snowden movie, I think became disillusioned during with Assange during the course of, of her work there. Joe, this has been awesome. Cult of the Dead Cow is out now. You can check out links in our show notes and in our daily newsletter, uh, as well as Fatal System Air, which I believe is, is out there. You can find that on Amazon. Thanks so much. It was great to have you on. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.